0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com uh, Welcome everybody, welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight's class is, is, a, is, is a good one, is a tough one. It's, a, uh, it's evolution. The idea of evolution, let's think of it like this. There was once a little kid who walks over to his uh, father and he goes, Dad, where do we come from? And his father looks at him, takes his pipe out, picks up his glasses, and he says, my son... We come from, you know, the apes and other, other species. So he goes, okay, cool. And then he goes to his mother, and he says, Mom, where do we come from? And she says, Why am I darling, we come from God's creation. God created us. So like any good child, he says, well, Dad said that we came from apes. And the mother says, true, he's talking about his family. I'm talking about my family. So when you have, when we're going to be dealing about issues about evolution... It's, it's a very touchy subject for some people. Some people get very, it's, and you'll soon see why I, and amongst other people also, call evolution a sort of a, a religion. People believe it with such emunah, such faith in evolution, that everything will happen, uh, you know, in the, in the sense of evolution. So, when you go and you study evolution, not that you should, but have you had, you know, if you did, some, some ideas that we're going to uh, um, you know, discuss on it. When you read it, you're like, okay, this can make sense, and then you could read it again, and then you'd be like, this makes absolutely zero sense. How did they even come into this? And it really depends on what angle you're coming from. There are some uh, information about evolution that is very, very, very much misrepresentative, and which we'll, we'll discuss about. We'll discuss that. There is also a lot of questions that they have on evolution, which is not that often discussed. A big problem that I have with it, in many places it is taught as a fact, not as a theory. And we'll soon see, evolution is a very broad term. There's many aspects to look at it. Some of it may be a fact, and some of it is very, very, very much a, a theory and not, nothing else. The um, One of the reasons why I like bringing this, uh, this topic up is we tend to sort of just trust science. When you hear about science, the questions that I get will be like, well, science says this, what about the Torah? What does the Torah say? And I have to go and now defend the Torah against science. Now there's one thing that you have to learn and will be able to learn over the course of this series is that the Torah never changes. The Torah is unchanging. It always stays exactly the same. Science is always evolving, always changing. When you have a constant and when you have a variable, what do you judge against what? You look at the constant, you look at what's unchanging, and then you see if it matches against the thing that's changing. For some reason in our generation, we look at it the other way around. We're like, no, but science says this. Like science says so many different things. Every day they change their mind, depending who, the, you know, what pills they took the night before, how depressed they were, and what in the mood they are, and then they go, they change thing. I'm joking. Obviously they have, uh, you know, theories and background and, you know, and, and evidence, but we'll soon see how far this evidence takes them. Other people use evolution as an excuse. Be like, God didn't have to create the world. Because we evolved from like nothing. We evolved from a micro, you know, like bacteria. We evolved from monkeys. It, there's no. You're, you're sort of taking God out of the equation. We'll actually soon see, bizrat, uh, that when you look at evolution, you could look at it as it leads away to God, or you could actually look at it how it leads to God. When we'll speak about the probability, when we'll speak about the the possibility of things happen. You'll realize and you'll see like there is very little that that this can happen. Thank you very much. You read my mind. <laughs> So, okay. What would we do without you? I don't know. I'll be very thirsty. Alright, that's one thing. Okay, so the another important aspect to keep in mind is there are possible solutions to a problem, and there are probable solutions to a problem. We spoke about this last week. The, you know, the idea is... This cup of water, well, I didn't see it. this cup of water is a bad example. The example that I used last week, you see this nice, beautiful spread that you have in front of you. You have the sushi, the chips, all the bachot that you can possibly think of, you have right in front of you. When you walked in here, say you didn't see somebody set up, you did not think that aliens broke in and set it up, and now you have this beautiful thing. You think that somebody came before and set it up. Now, aliens, is it totally unprobable? Uh, yeah, well, if you don't believe in aliens, yeah. But let's say uh, illegal aliens. Maybe they're the ones that came over here and set everything up. Now, is it is it likely, is it possible? It's very possible, it's just not probable. Why would they come here? Why would they, you know, maybe they got the ad and they saw it and they said, listen, it's an interesting class, we don't want to attend because we believe in evolution, but we're going to set it up. Very possible, but not probable. So we're going to look at the probable the probable solutions for ideas, not the possible solutions for ideas. Possible solutions, we can come up, with, you know, out of our heads, you know, millions of them. Okay, so now, with that introduction, we can begin. Let's first, we first have to understand... What science says. When dealing with science, and and this is something that I get pretty often, people come and they'll say, oh yeah? Well, science says this. And I'll be like, No, it doesn't, because you don't know what science says, because you're just mimicking what somebody told you science says. If you look what science says, science does not say that. People like to copy. People like to think of themselves as philosophers, as scientists, as, as and if you actually study the material, it's very different from what we actually understand it. So let's try to understand uh what evolution is in the scientific uh you know uh you know verbiage of it. So we know there is an idea called mutations. Uh, you know, you have something that can mutate, it could change into something else. The way that evolution works is like this. There is, mutation we know is possible, We know, and I'm not talking about like, you know, you become like Spider-Man, or you become, yeah, I don't know what's, what's popular now, I'm sorry. But there, there's, you know, whatever this action hero is like something that you all of a sudden can shoot, you know, because you got bitten by a spider, now you could all climb on walls. Don't think, first of all, don't get bitten by spiders, because it's very likely you'll probably get infected and possibly die, depending on the spider. Don't think that all of a sudden you're going to start climbing on walls. But mutations can occur, and they do occur. So the way that they explain like this, this is the evolution. There are some times that they'll have a mutation. Now, this mutation can be one of three things. It could either be beneficial... It can either be harmful or it can either be neutral. Neutral doesn't matter, we don't need to care about it, we'll put it on the side. If it is harmful for the species or whatever, the, the bacteria, that whatever we're talking about, if the mutation is harmful, it's going to die out, it's not going to survive. Because it's harmful, it's going to die out. If it is beneficial, then that species is going to become stronger than everybody else. It's going to be the Spider-Man, if we may, um, you know, say, of of all the other species. It's going to be stronger than other species, and hence, it's going to be the one that will survive. This will be the survival of the fittest of the mutations. To think of it like this, think of it as a, um, you know, a bacteria. Bacteria, if anybody learned biology, there is, you know... You don't, there's no, like, mama bacteria and papa bacteria, and they, you know, they fell in love, and, you know, they had children together. That's not how it works in the reproduction, you know, organs of bacteria. Rather, how does bacteria work? Bacteria works in a, in a sense that they could make a copy of themselves. Imagine you can do that, right? Imagine you could just, like, concentrate really hard. I'm not saying that bacteria is concentrate, But I'm saying, imagine you could concentrate really hard, and then, like, duplicate an exact replica of you. It would be great. Send them to do shopping, send them to class, send them to do this, send them to do everything. Bacteria can do that. Bacteria can go and replicate an exact carbon copy of themselves. Now, and I'm just using a random number, I'm not saying this is anything scientific, say out of every one million doubling of you know this, this multiplying of the bacteria, a mutation can occur. It's, it's built in. Mutations can occur. So say there's one out of every million mutations. Most mutations are harmful for the bacteria, for the body. Mutations are not good. But, out of every million, there's one mutation. Out of every, say, million mutations, there's one that is, happens to be beneficial. Randomly, I hate that word random, but randomly it's beneficial. So, this is something very interesting. You have something... And let's think, of it, let's think of a bacteria on, on a dish. Now, you have this bacteria over here. It has flu. It has everything it needs to survive and to thrive. Uh, say every 10 minutes, it doubles itself. You know, it, 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 it can, uh, you know, clone itself. It can copy itself. It's, it can replicate itself. Now, every 20 minutes, it keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, say you take a nice bottle of antibiotics and pour it all over the bacteria. What's going to happen to the bacteria? It's going to die out. But say one out of those millions bacteria, or how much ever bacteria is there, one of them had a mutation, and that mutation sort of kung fooed that antibiotics out of it out of the outside and be like, not today, mister. All right, you are not coming in here today. And it just it put, put the bacteria out. I know some terms though. All right? <laughs> so they, they just put the bacteria right out. So now what's gonna happen? All the bacteria in the dish is gonna die out, except for one. Except for this one lone bacteria is gonna stand over there and it's gonna be in its in its own. Now what's gonna happen? This bacteria is gonna is gonna replicate and replicate and replicate. It's gonna take over the entire dish. So we see over here this is the idea of mutation and, and this is also something called natural selection. The the strongest will um will survive. Now, this is actually something that we do see. We know that there's something, uh, there, there's bacteria infections in the body that resist antibiotics. Uh, some of them would be, for example, methicillin resistant staphylococcus aureus. This, antibiotics, does not work. You have also vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. You have bacteria that do not respond to antibiotics. How did this happen? Through these random mutations, it's going to go and be able to, ha- to build a defense against that, uh, against that anti- antibiotic. So this we see can uh, can happen. This is something that is noted in in the you know in the evolution terms as microbiology as microbiology as a microevolution. Now microevolution, we know we know it exists. We know it exists. Let's look at something else. Let's look at something called macroevolution. Macroevolution. Let's look, for example, at whales. Whales are you know, contrary to popular belief. Uh, if you just look at whales, you think of it, you know, it's a large fish, if you don't know anything about science, and you came up a boat, right, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's a very big fish. Whales are known as mammals. Now, why are they known as mammals? For a few reasons. Number one, they get, actually give birth to live, to live young. They also have fur, not a lot, but they have fur. They also breathe air, they have lungs, and they can also provide milk for the young. They are known as mammals. Now, as mammals, mammals originated on the ground. I mean, obviously everybody, according to evolution, originated in, uh, in the ocean, in the, in the water. But mammals came from the ground, and then the whales went back to the ocean. Now, the question is, how and why did they get there? So, the why is, they say it's a pretty simple uh, you know, answer, is because there was more food in the ocean. And there was too much, they were, they were fighting too much in you know, the land, they saw more food in the ocean, so they made their way to the oceans to get more food. It, this is interesting, because it's the same reason why you have the, the, the species in the water, they went on the land for more food. Right? So, you know, I guess a balance of, of you know, of the world. So now the question is, how did whales become sea creatures? If they were mammals, how did they get into the sea creatures? So, there's something called evolution, through random mutations. You have a mammal. We're, we are known as mammals. Where are our noses, Our mouths? over here in the front in our face right right over here a whale where does it breathe from it has something called a blowhorn. it's in the, it's in it's more in the back it's in the how if this was a mammal how did that ear blowhorn how did it come from here from the face how did it travel all the way to the back Ah, science has an answer for everything very simple it was through random mutations see one what happened was one time they had a baby and the baby came out with the nose slightly too high and they were like, oh, like this this baby looks funny. Let's you know, you know, put him on the side. But this baby was actually stronger for survival. Why? Because when he was going to get food in the in the ocean in the water, it was easier for him to breathe because all he had to go was a little bit ho- less higher than everybody else. So this baby became stronger, became the survival of the fittest, became the natural selection, and this baby ended up becoming more productive and formed more children than anybody else. Uh, it, it well more in the survival aspect of it so you have this and, and then what happened was is that this offspring you know count a few million years or how much ever you want a few hundred thousand years and the nose slowly kept on climbing and it kept on climbing until it was right where it is positioned now and Shalom and this is how we have the whale that we have today <laughs> so this is some you know this is something very interesting this is by the way not even macro not even macro evolution to the extent this is similar to, to just an idea of of just a change of, of the actual species in itself. Let's think of macro-mutations means one change happened to another, a change on a large scale. How does that happen according to science? So let us explain something, something like this. You have two different types of dogs. The example that I saw when, it was, when, I, when I read this, they have, and I don't know dogs, but you know, I'll give you the example. There was a St. Bernard... From my understanding, it's a very large dog, and then you have a chihuahua. That I know, it's a little dog you put in your in your purse, right? and You carry around. That that's the one. I, that's the one, right? That's the one you put in your purse, right? Okay. So um, you have these two dogs. Can they interbreed? It's gonna be very difficult, but maybe through you know artificial insemination, they can interbreed. I mean, the puppy's gonna look very interesting, but they can they can technically have puppies. They'll have puppies. They'll be weird puppies, but they'll have puppies. Now. Imagine you take these two dogs, these two species, and you put them on separate islands for millions of years. Now what happens, what's going to happen is that the St. Bernards are going to go through some random mutations through the time. To the extent that they'll eventually, through interbreeding and through other mutations, they'll actually become a different, a little bit, at least, of a different species. And the same thing with the Chihuahuas. The Chihuahuas will come into a different species and they'll become something else. So... After all these mutations take effect, if you try to interbreed them now, they're not going to work. Why? Because they're two different species. That is macroevolution. That, that, uh, that is the evolution idea in very, very brief. So now let's, let's try to understand the, you know, some holes in the theory, some problems that we have in the theory. Now from my understanding, when they teach evolution... I, and I may be wrong, I know in some places they do teach problems with evolution, but for the majority of places, if you're going in, in high school, in a, especially in a, in a public high school or if anything, they don't really teach you the issues and the problems that they have with their evolution. So, let's speak about first about the evolutions of, of mammals. So, just so you know, mammals, humans are mammals, dogs are mammals, bats, whales, elephants, giraffes, panda bears, all mammals. You can see there's a little bit of discrepancy between a bat and a whale. Right there's a little difference right it's called a few hundred feet in size and a few I don't know how much tons in, you know in, in size as well yet we all came from a same ancestor according to evolution So the problem that we have over here is a problem called the speed problem The speed problem is is according to Carl Sagan it said something like this a characteristic period for emergence of one advanced species from another is perhaps 100,000 years now, say, there's a big machloket in the, you know, in, you know, in the post-scheme of the evolution, of where and when the mammals began, and how you have a different wide ranges. Say we use a, a middle ground of 65 million years, which means 65 million years ago, according to evolution, there was a sort of a mammal that was the first type of mammal, and from there came everything else. Now, that means, if you take, if, if you take 100,000 years from, from, when, from which each, you know, advanced species can develop to another advanced species... How many do you have in uh, 65 uh, million years? You have 650 periods of 100,000 uh, years. Does that make sense? Is that clear? If you take 65 million, you divide it by 100,000, you get 650. Which means is, we and maybe you'll understand it like this. We have 600, 650 ticks to get from a dog to an elephant and in transition period. The, the problem that we have with this is that let 's use an elephant's uh, you know the, the elephant 's trunk it has one hundred and fifty thousand muscles, so somehow in six hundred and fifty times it takes this dog's snout have to turn into an elephant, which is very unlikely even if everything is perfect the, and you look from everything you look from a you know from a you know from a dog to an elephant from a dog to a bat, from a whale to a dog you know all these things which all came from one species, is very hard to grasp in that period of time. It's just, even 65 million years, through random mutations, is very difficult to understand. Uh, the, you, you look at it from a different perspective. The, according to evolution, w- the humans, we evolved from a species called Homo erectus. This Homo erectus appeared on Earth about 2 million years ago, according to science. Now, you look at the skull... Of this Homo erectus, its brain size was half the si- roughly half the size of our brain size today. Our brain size today is about 1,500 cubic centimeters. Theirs were about between 800 to 900 cubic centimeters. Which means is that it had to double in size. But double in size not just means that you just you know just double in size. There's there's neurons in there. We have about 100 billion neurons in our brains. Which means is half the size, half the neurons, 50 billion neurons. So in two million years. You have to go from fifty billion neurons to. Anybody with me? A hundred billion? No one's with me. Like nobody. Okay, nobody. Okay. So okay. I'm
1: trying to understand so can... Okay,
0: let's. We'll take it slow. It's
1: a lot of
0: math, you know. We we are okay. Fine. Well, it's it's very very simple. If I you know it it really is straightforward. Let's speak specifically about the neurons. We had. Two million years ago, according to science, we had roughly about 50 billion neurons. Forget about the, what the word neurons means. Forget about what it means. Just think about the number 50 billion. Now we have 100 billion neurons, whatever that means, right? Let's let's forget about that. What what that actually means? So now just to try to simplify it. Whenever someone's teaching something, whatever, yeah. But I'm saying, but well, but it's it let yeah. Let's 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 make it very simple. For our American population. And um,
1: <laughs> not, American.
0: Not, not you. Not you. Not you. I'm talking about it, you know, on camera. You know, people. And now, not on camera. Alright. I dug myself into a hole that I can't get out, so we're just gonna leave the hole and we're gonna dig another hole probably soon. Now, you have if you have, remember, 50 billion to 100 billion, right? That, that number is, is a pretty significant number. And you have 2 million years to fill that gap. Now say that this Homo erectus, which is the old humans, the, the prior humans, say they can breed every 10 years. A very, very liberal number. Very, you know, unlikely and, you know, problematic. But let's say every 10, 10, 10 years. So if you take 10, in 10 years, how many generations do you have in 2 million years? You don't want out. You don't have to do the math. I'll tell you. You have two hundred thousand generations. Two hundred thousand generations. So which means is in two hundred thousand generations, you have to go from fifty billion to hundred billion neurons. Now, in order for that to happen, that would mean there's a few possibilities that you can go there, But just very simple, every generation will have to add. 250,000 neurons. Now this is very problematic because we have every generation today and we see that every child born is not producing another 250,000 neurons. So this, this answer is very unlikely. But then you could, you could divvy up the math in any way. You could say one time it just happened to be that there was an increase of 2.5 billion neurons. Any way that you break this math does not make sense. It just doesn't make sense that the time period that you're giving me from when this was this size to when this was supposed to be this size, it just doesn't make sense. It's mathematically speaking, it's very improbable. Possible, yeah, but not improbable. So now, that is one issue we have. One issue we have with evolution is that the time frame that they're giving is very unlikely for it to happen. Because you have to understand the way that evolution understands it is that we all came from like one bacteria, one like organism. There's one organism that came into the world, and everything from else from that came into it came into being. Where did that one organism come from? We'll deal with that uh, you know soon. When soon? Right now. So now, the the question is. Is that we had something called inanimate objects. With inanimate objects are objects that are not alive. This uh, the Big Bang, which we spoke about last week. You have you have these uh, um, you know rocks are inanimate. You know Earth inanimate things that are not alive are inanimate. Like
1: tables.
0: Yeah, everything in existence by the Big Bang was inanimate. Why? Because it was not possible according to the Big Bang to have any live live uh, you know any animate uh, object. So somehow. From inanimate, became animate. Which means that somehow, there was a first life cell. So, the, the, and the question is, where did this cell come from? Where did the original life... Which, let me explain like this. In order to have evolution, life has to exist. Life has to exist before you can start saying it diversified. Before it, it started mutating, it had to exist. Where did it come from? And the answer is, I don't know. Oh, see, I don't know. So evolution. evolution doesn't have an answer to this. In order and let me Yeah, yeah, they don't have an answer for this. Yeah. And so they scratch your heads. In order well, well, there's some answers, and it's and it's it's these answers are are humorous, they're enjoyable. We're gonna bizarre some get to that. So in order to understand what a living cell is, in order to understand what it is, it means it has to have a few criteria. Number one, it has to have a cell wall. Number two, some of you probably feel like you're back in microbiology. But number two is that you, the, the cell has to have the ability to maintain and expand that cell wall, which means it has to have the ability to grow. Number three, it has the, have to have the ability to process food. And the food has to be you know, in, in the nearby area. Thank you very much. It also has to have the ability to split, which means to reproduce itself. All these things classify it as live. If it doesn't have this information, it's not live. The question is, where did the first cell come from? Remember, we had a question last class about uh, the Big Bang. Where did the matter come from? Now we have a different question. Where did the first live cell come from? Good question. Um, do they so, know they have this question? yes, they do know they have this question. They, have an answer. And they, they have, do not have an answer. And they still believe in it. They still believe it. The <laughs> evolution. Yeah. They do. So, what? Well, but they teach it it, ah, process. but don't. That, that's true if they would teach it like that. So, we have here two things. It's a great thing that you picked that up microevolution and macroevolution. Now that we had a little bit of basic understanding of evolution, now we can classify things. Microevolution is what we spoke about earlier. You have bacteria that mutate, can, can build a defense against antibiotics. We got that. That exists. We know it's proven. Chazaka we can move on. That is fine. That is, you could say that is a fact. Micro, microevolution. Macroevolution is where we have the problem. How can you tell me that one species turned into another? We don't have evidence for that. Where did the first species come from? Where did the first live species come from? We don't have that there. We don't have that evidence. We don't have that. Science does not have an answer for that. We have a few problems for that. And in fact, Darwin, Darwin himself, Said like this, he says, and I quote: "The eye to this day gives me a cold shudder. The eye is such a perfect specimen that to happen by accident is very how, you know, it's very it's very hard to understand." According to that, so let's let's that, so let's move on with some problems that we have with evolution. And by the way, I'm not saying that evolution is not true, and and because and, I know there's some die-hard evolution fans out there, I'm not saying that it's not true. Right now, I'm saying based off science. I'm not going, ba- we didn't even touch the Torah yet. We didn't even touch the Torah's as view yet. We're talking based off science, and this is based off, and this is not things that I decided to come out. This is like, these are questions that are brought by people that are in the, these fields. Let's look at a third problem that we have with, um, with science. There's something called fossils. So, to understand what fossils are, fossils are preserved remains of a plant. Or an animal's body. Now how could these preserved remains come? They could come in one of two forms. Either it could be an actual imprint. So you don't see anything. You just see like a footprint of a, you know, like a Trinosaurus Rex. Whatever it is that you see. You see, a, a, you know, that imprint. Or you could actually see a preserved part of it. The skeletons, the bones, the that. Whether it's true or not, it's a totally different topic. Totally different, uh, you, know, uh, you know, thing to understand. But the way that they understand it is something very simple. You have, uh, you know, you're baking a seven layer cake. As a baker, a chef, you know. Uh, well, actually, you don't have to be a baker or chef. As any normal human being, you know that the bottom has to come before the top, and then the second layer has to come before the third, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Which means is, according to the fossil records, the lowest level had to come first in time, and then as you go higher, means that it has to come higher in time. Makes sense. Very simple. Okay. So, when we're looking at fossil records, according to evolution, we should see. Nearly identical parent species, which means is, if everything evolved from one sort of species, we should see something, you know, like, transition, basically, transition thing. We should see something that transitions between a human and an ape, or a chimpanzee. We should see something that transitions between a reptile and whatever they say that comes after a reptile. Like, like stages, sort of stages, like, you know, here's a good example. Um, Where do wings come from? You want to say wings come from fit, from the from the uh, from the fins? Uh, from where where we should see, or did the wings come? We should see a transition period, and this is something very interesting because we should technically see underdeveloped wings in in uh, in the fossil records. And by the way, we'll soon speak about the fossil record. We have a lot of fossil records, so we should see like a sort of half wing. You know, creature, or even a full-wing creature, but not fully functional. Because we'll soon see when we speak about birds. There's a lot of factors that have to come to flight. You can't just have a wing. As you ask many people that try drugs and they try flying, it doesn't work. If you paint, you know, a kite onto your hands, and, you know, and you try flapping very fast, it's just not going to work. So, the idea that this brings up into in question is something called survival of the fittest. Let's say you have one little duckling. And this little duckling does not have any wings. It can run very nice and fast. Then you have another duckling. Let's call this duckling the ugly duckling. Why? Because it has extra things on the side. It's sort of flapping. Now, which one will be able to run faster away from its predators? The one without the extra, you know, situation flapping in the, you know, on the sides. I'd be like, You know, what's going on over here? Why do I have these little things over here? Now, survival of the fittest would mean that anything that's underdeveloped shouldn't come into fruition shouldn't come into the natural selection shouldn't come into the being it should stop right then and there you have somebody that's running away and it's a half wing should you know is not going to be as fit to survive as somebody with no half wing it's imagine trying to run away from a you know you know a robber let's say that is you know while carrying you know three extra you know pounds it's much easier to ditch the pounds and run, you'll be able to run faster. So this is also a problem uh, that we have. Now when you're dealing with fossil records, Professor Herbert Nilsson of Lund University in Sweden disclosed, and this is back in 1954, that the fossil material is now so complete that the lack of transitional series cannot be explained by the scarcity of the material. So where is it? We don't have the evidence... You're telling me about evolution. You're telling me about this. Show me the evidence. There is no evidence in it. 1974, paleontologist Barbara Stahl said about bird feathers, how they arose initially, presumably from reptile scales, defies analysis. They can't explain it. It doesn't make sense according to science. For me, obviously, it doesn't make sense. But according to science, they say it doesn't make sense. You have, and this is something very interesting, and I'll read it for you. People who believe in evolution must either close their eyes to the existence of these flaws and these questions, or have faith, emuna, bitachon, in that someday these difficulties will be, by, by such issues will be answered by, by science in the future. You could have emunah. I personally don't have that much faith in it. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying scientifically standing with the evidence that we have right now, possible, maybe, but not probable, Let's look at something else. Another problem, another flaw with the evolution. So Darwin assumed that the species could slowly evolve through a series of mutations. So, um, there was, you know, scientists that decided to see how they can mutate these species. Let's see. It. Let's try to mutate these species and see what we if we can actually change it. So there was a scientist by the name of Ernest Mayer, a, a, from Harvard University, a geneticist. By na- in 1948, he, di- he had a theory called genetic homeostasis. And he did a test that performed on fruit flies. What he did was, is that this fly naturally grows 36 bristles. Now, what he tried to do, is he tried to manipulate that. And he was able to manipulate, to bring this fly down to 26 bristles, and as many as 56 bristles, from the normal 36. Right? So minus 10 plus 20. Now, what happens when he pushed the genetics, the fly genetics, beyond these limits? They died out. They became sterile and they died out. Which means is that he was able to change them, to mutate them, to a certain extent before they died out. Now, let's say he got the extent. Let's say he got a bunch of, you know, 26 bristle fries. they were like, hanging out. like, hey, what's up? He's like, what are you? I'm 27 bristles. I'm 26 bristles. What's up? You know? He's like, don't come to my part of the hood. So let's say the 26 bristles, you know, you know group, they hung out with each other. And they interpret. And what, you know what something very interesting happened? That after five generations, they all came back to 36 bristles. Which means is that the mutations sort of fixed themselves. They sort of returned to normal. This is like, you know, like you're driving and you, know, you have the GPS. And the GPS saying, you know, make a right turn in 400 feet. And you're like, oh man, I just missed it. What do they tell you after that? Recalculating route. And they keep on... Re- no matter how much you far you go, they keep on... In the most calmest way. You could like be so far off. They'll just be like recalculating root. So there's a certain amount of time that... After, after these flies came, came out as like 26, 27, 30, doesn't matter the number, less than 36, they sort of recalculated the route and they sort of corrected themselves. We have a very big problem over here. Because over here we see that the genes do not have the mutability the limits that, they, that we thought that they did. If we pushed them, they died. If we went under, they actually just changed themselves. And this went on again with, um, they, they created eyeless flies. They were able to create flies without eyes. Right? If flies are not, you know, you know, scary enough for some, I know, I know for some people, you know, like, I don't understand, like, there's some things like squirrels, cats, not a problem. A fly, forget, you see somebody in the street, you know, it's like, you know, it looks like they're doing kung fu in the ear, and, you know, it's like, I don't know, bee, or, you know, a fly, you know, something, God forbid, that, that's, that's going close to their vicinity. Um, it's something very interesting, but, uh, you know... it it is more particular to certain gender species which we won't, we we won't want to point any fingers. But like, cockroaches have a huge problem. Ants? Not so bad. No, ants not so bad. Cockroaches! No, no, is it one too many feet? I I don't know what, I haven't dealt, I haven't dealt with the science behind it. It's a... So if it would be a pretty cockroach, it would be something else. Yeah, be okay so look at the beauty of God's creation. Imagine God would have created the cockroach to be very colorful like a butterfly. You're like, oh look, you know, my dear husband, we have cockroaches. <laughs> Isn't this wonderful? Um, but no, God created the cockroach you to be. Instinct. It must be. there, there must be. Yeah. For the, for the yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> must be something. Learning. exactly it's innate right you see a mouse what do you do you jump on the table and that's it even though you're like a thousand times bigger than it I scream and then jump right so in any case we see something very interesting over here we see something very interesting from this from this uh test is that the no matter how much mutations you made they sort of returned to the original uh to the original thing and not only that they were actually harmful for the species so it, it puts a little bit of a dent in this evolution theory. Now let's speak a little bit about mathematics. Mm. Here's where it gets interesting. You know, you'll, you'll enjoy it. I'll make it very simple. Believe that though. So, level, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I'm going to use an analogy. We're going to start with an analogy with Rabbi Dr. David Gottlieb. Say I take an object and I paint one side red. And I throw it up three times. And every single time it lands on the red, on the red side. Now, if I ask you, do you believe that it's probable, very likely, that that happened? You might say yes. You know, I see a bunch of you shaking yes. The, really, you should not. You should not be shaking your heads yes. Why Why not? Because I didn't tell you how many sides it has. You thought originally when I said that, that it had two sides, like a coin. Now, if I take a coin three times and I flip it up and I say his head, you know, all three times, the probability is one-eighth. Very likely, very possible, not something... But let's say I tell you that this object that I have has... 500 sides. A thousand sides. Now if I ask you the same question. I took this object. 500 sides. I painted one side red. I threw it up three times. It landed every single time on the red. Will you believe me? Uh, maybe, but less likely. You know, I have a little bit doubts about your you know, throwing abilities. Uh, you know, if you, every single time it landed on the, on the red. Now what happens if I ask you the questions. I threw an object. I painted one side red. And it landed on the red side every time. And you ask me, well how many sides does it have? And I tell you, I'm not telling you know and then you and then i say do you believe me i'll say i don't have enough information you have to tell me how many sides and then i can base off the probability if it's likely or if it's not this is what evolution is you ask evolution what is the probability of it happening we got to know you're coming with a theory i want to know what's the chances of it happening evolution will tell you oh, yeah. You know, know it is. You know, Get some snack. You know, you know. I, they don't know what the, you know what the probabilities, and rightfully so, they don't know because h- how are they supposed to know what are the chances of thing happening in the ice age and the tropical age? There's so many different factors are coming to play. There's no way that they will be able to know it. So let's think. Let's speak a little bit about numbers, about probability, about the beauty of mathematics. Math, if you understand it, it's really beautiful. How how everything how everything works. Uh, most people hate it which is understandable, because if you don't understand something, you're ready to grow to, to uh, dislike it, which makes sense. There is, um... Uh, let's explain very simple. In 1981, a Nobel Prize winner by the name of Fred Hoyle said that the odds of a single bacteria evolving randomly is very unlikely. How unlikely? It is more unlikely that you have a tornado that goes through a junkyard and assembles a Boeing 747 jet from the material inside. Now, I'm not just saying that it looks like a Boeing 747, I'm saying every single detail you know, with the screens in the front, that you can, you know, whatever, I don't know how size the screens are, in the plane's now at 8 inches, We you know, with the touch key, everything with the seats, you know, economy, so you know you have zero feet, so you could hear and feel the breathing of the person in front of you and behind of you, um, you know, I'm talking about that whole, the whole scenario, that there's more of a chance of you have a tornado going through a junkyard and building a, four, a 747 from it, than having a single bacteria, one, just one bacteria evolving, and it just happened to have. So, I want to take you through a little bit of a journey. This is Rabbi Lawrence Kellman. You know, brought it down. Oh, so it's very simple because they look at the you know the the statistical ability of it happening versus the statistical ability that it's happening. So you could, change, based on math, you could see how many parts it has, how many things it has to get together. They're different, there's so many different aspects of it that it, what, the point of this being is that it's so unlikely. This is how unlikely it is. It's more likely that this would happen, that this tornado will go through a junkyard and it will build you a, you know, a uh, 747. So, now let me uh, let me share with you something from Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman. The maximum amount the universe existed, not a, according to the science thing, right? You're talking about billions and billions of years. How many seconds is that? That's a lot. That's a lot of seconds. Every single day has 86. 1,400 seconds. That's a lot of seconds. Yeah, think about how much time you waste watching a movie or watching a TV show. Think about how much seconds you're like, oh my gosh. And sometimes, after watching this wasteful time of time, you'll be like, oh my god, I can't believe I just wasted two hours of that. Think about how many seconds that is. Two hours is a small number, seconds is a very large number. So, how many seconds are in the billion, billions and billions of years in the universe created? A very large number, you would agree, right? The number is, we're going to condense it in, in you know, mathematical terms, 10 to the power of 18. It sounds small, but it's obviously large. It's a very large number. So that means to say that 10 to the 18th is a very, very large number. Think about all the seconds in the billions and billions of years. Okay, the probability of an enzyme developing accidentally is 10 to the power of 20. 1 in 10 to the power of 20, which means, I don't even have to explain I think that's pretty self-explanatory how big of a number the probability is. What about, uh, you, know, uh, you know, let's say you take a few thousand enzymes, because we have thousands upon thousands of enzymes in our body. Let's say you take 25,000 enzymes. The probability that we have more than that, 25,000 enzymes in our body, what is the probability of that happening? So, the probability of it happening spontaneously once in a billion years is 1 in 10 to the power of 599,950. Close to 6 to the power, which is a, truma- a number that we can't even fathom to understand. Let me explain to you how large this number is. This you will probably enjoy. A forest that is a million square miles. Now, you'll say, okay, how big is a million square miles? Good thing you asked me, because I'll tell you. Okay, Israel is 8,500 square miles. That's a very large. Azerbaijan, I made sure specifically to look at (laughs) Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is 33,400 square miles. All of Azerbaijan, all of it. It's 33, 30, almost 33,500 miles. So which means is when I'm saying a million square miles, it's a very large amount. Anybody not from Azerbaijan, you look at India. India is 1.24 million square miles. From India. <laughs> uh, USA, I'm trying, here Right, China, should we try China? China is 3.7 million square miles. USA is 3.8 million square miles. Uh, Russia. So uh, Russia is actually very large. It's 6.6. Poland. So, all right, this is, we'll leave this for... Yeah. We're going off topic. Jewish geography. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how many square miles? That's a good question. So, if you look at 3.8, let's use America, right, the U.S. of A, right, we have America, you have 3.8 million square miles. So you take 1 million square miles, it's a very large chunk of, of uh, you know, U.S.A. So you take that, and you fill it up with trees, all trees. How many trees? Good thing you asked. It's 10,000 trees per square mile. That's a lot of trees in all the miles. Now, if I were to ask you how many leaves per tree, also a good thing you ask, it's 100,000 leaves per tree. Now, if I were to ask you how many leaves are in all this million square miles, you will tell me it's a very large number. You want to know the number? The number is roughly 10 to the power of 15. That means that 10 to the power of 15 is a tremendous amount of number, which means everything that I told you till, till now is just, should be mind-boggling, of someone come and tell you, will be like, this probably happened. Oh yeah, what's the chances of it happening? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, very, very, very unlikely. And if I take 10 to the power of 15 varies is how much I have to put in that berry, in, you know, in between those varies. So, the idea of a, var- a valuable bacterium developing by itself is 1 in 10 to the power of 39,950. Let's speak for a second about what's the probability of a human being being created. Right, we're humans, we hope, right? So we're here. What is the probability of us being here? Spontaneously, randomly, whatever word you want to use. It is 10 to the power of 1.25 trillion. That should, mo- that should just be like, and people are like, yep, we came from nothing. It's, it's yeah, this, this is what science says. Not really. If you look at the, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. So, if you were to write ten to the power of one point two five trillion, you know how many books you would need. So I wanted to try to make you understand this number. So I tried to figure out like what's a book or a series of books that everyone knows and is very large. So I thought about Harry, Harry Potter. Potter. Very good. You know, bull. Okay. So, how many words are written in all the Harry Potter books? How many words? All, oh you're asking I thought you know I thought some of the people I met somebody once I met somebody once that uh, told me he has Harry Potter books in his bathroom so I said why? I said this I mentioned this before so a while ago I, well, I could mention it again it's a joke so I guess I can mention it if it's been a year so he's not for toilet paper no he says because he likes he likes reviewing it every so often and I'm like who is testing you on Harry Potter that you need to know it. Like, I don't understand. People, the Harry Potter is like, you know, there's a Bible and then, you know, Harry Potter. So, I don't know how many books are in Harry Potter. There's like seven, eight, nine, I don't care. Seven, okay. So, there's seven books. How many words are are in all the Harry Potter books? A little bit over a million. You want the exact number? I had to do this research. I wasn't going to sit there and count. So, I thought, I'm like... What is going to be something that somebody would count? I thought Harry Potter. You know, Harry Potter would be a good thing. So I was right. I searched for it and I found it out. The number of words in Harry Potter is 1,084,170 words. If That's a lot of words in all that book. To write 1.25, 10 to the power of 1.25 trillion, you will need several hundred thousand books just to write the number down. Just to write the number down, you would need so many books. And yeah, this is where we came from. I, I don't know. I have a question, professor. You know, it you know, doesn't make sense to me. It's a big problem. Yeah. I don't
1: get that. This number is the probability of us, what, coming
0: from... Spontaneously through... You know, yeah. <laughs> That's an evolution. Yeah. The, the evolution, evolution is... Yeah, came in from... First it came a little bacteria, and then bacteria came, and then became a little, and, you know, a fish. And then a fish became a little reptile, and reptile became a little, you know, mammal. The mammal became a little, you know, bigger. Why is this believed? It's a good question. It's a, but it's belief with such with such oh, oh my gosh! If you read what people they're they're like no like oh my, people believe it. They're willing to go so far with this. I you know such a strong belief they have for evolution. Are all
1: those yours?
0: Yes, they are. Okay, in 1991, Scientific American staff writer quoted Crick saying the origin the origin of life appears to be almost a miracle, and I agree with that. So, you look at birds, for example. You know, birds. The bones of birds are very different than the bones of of any of any other animal. The bones of birds have to be, you know, they have to be hollow. They have to be. Um, well, they're not. They're basically hollow. But they, why? Because they have to be able to allow for flight of the birds. But they have to be strong enough for the birds. Now the question is, how is it possible that a bird could flap its wings several times a second and fly for hours without getting tired? You have people that just walk up the stairs and they're coming in they're like, <gasps> They're like, did you just run a marathon? It's like, you saw how many stairs they have? You know how steep they are? They're, they're, they're like six inches higher than the regular stairs. <laughs> and But let's say even if you have a marathon runner, like someone who's able to run, how much can he run already before... They get tired out. It's going to be a, there's going to be a time limit where they to be like, you know what, I, you know I can't. You know there's there's so much that I can do now. Why is it? Why can birds fly for so long without getting tired out, and humans or anything else cannot? So the answer is is something called oxygen. When we exorti- exercise, when we exercise, when we exercise, right? When we exercise, yeah, can put a bunch of birds' words together. So when we exercise, um, we need an increase of oxygen. The problem is, we can only get so much oxygen. When we breathe in oxygen, we get the oxygen. When we breathe out oxygen, we're, it, we're breathing out deoxygenated air, we're not able to bring in that oxygen. So our, our, so our muscles get tired, because we're not getting the continuous flow of oxygen. There's something very miraculous, or evolutionary, if I could say, for the evolutionists, that happens for birds. There's something very interesting. Birds, when they inhale oxygen, the, half of the oxygen goes into the lungs, and the other half goes into a special reserve, of ear sacs that the birds have. Now, when the birds exhale the the deoxygenated ear, those ear sacs go and they give the, the muscles a continuous flow of oxygen. Which means in which means is that the birds have a continuous flow of oxygen, no matter how many times. So this is why they're able to go, they're able to fly for hours and they're able to migrate. Who told them how to migrate? Different question. I don't know. Also, um, well, technically I do know, but you know, science. Uh, you know, it's a good question. So, you have something else. You have like birds, bats insects, all have, all have wings, but they're all, you know, different. You have fish, whales, both have fins, but they're both different. What are the chances of that happening, two different species suddenly having the most random mutation together? That's imagining like you have two people from different origins, from different countries, from different upbringings, from different social backgrounds, from different everything, that write the same exact book verbatim. Word for word, what are the chances of that happening? Very, very unlikely. Possible, again, but very unlikely. So, you know, desperate times calls for desperate measures. And you have here um, a person by the name of Sir Francis Crick. He was a biologist. He was the one who, dedu- who deduced the double helical structure of the DNA. He actually received the Nobel Prize for this. So he, he was bothered by a very big question. Where did the origin of life come from? How did we get the first bacteria, the first cell? Where do we get the first live cell? In 1983... Crick wrote a book called Life Itself. And in it, he said something, a very interesting theory. The theory is like this. You're familiar with extraterrestrial life? Okay, so he's also very strong of this theory. He says, you know, how life came to this world? So we had this extraterrestrial life. So aliens, basically, right? Aliens living on different planets. They were nervous about the fear of extinction in their extinction in their planet. So they sent out, they shot out into space, you know, you know, like their frozen seed into space. So, you know, to, to sort of seed other planets, like bacteria and that. So they sort of and what happens is, it just so happened to be that Earth you know, it received it, gravity came and pulled it in and it came over here and poof, you know so we are all part of, you know, this alienistic uh, culture the problem, I mean it's, it seems like a nice theory but there's a, there's an issue, Their issue is where did they come from, exactly where did the aliens come from, oh, from a different land. So if you go back time enough, there has to be an origin where did that origin, uh, you know, come from let's deal with some, you know so here, from here on point, it seems very clear where we're where we're leaning, uh, you know, towards. Now, again, I'm not saying evolution is false. There's part of evolution that's very true. There's other other part of evolution that is, according to science, does not make sense. Uh, with all due respect to all the scientists that have spend so much time on this, it just doesn't make sense. It does, the numbers don't match up. We're we're missing evidence. That will be all nice and dandy until we encounter something called fraud. So there is, um, you know, we've had some, some some major issues. So like we said with, with um, you know, the rock strata like fossil records. So you have the lower it is that the, the more that it was supposed to be prehistoric that it should have came beforehand. Now they found in fossil records create, cre- you know I can't say creations, but um, you know animals, uh, species that exist, that should have existed before fossils that they found in the higher realms. Which means is when they went into the fossil digging, they found things that didn't seem to add up. Some of the things should have been higher up in the strata, other things should have been lower up in the, in the strata. Which means is that there's some animals that they thought should have existed after, really existed way before. There was a... Um, in, in the beginning of the 20th century, the early 1900s. In fact, I'll give you the date, why not? August 31st, 1909. You had a person, a paleontologist, by the name of Charles Doolittle Walcott. He was researching... The Canadian Rocky Mountains that were full of fossils. And he, he was also served as the secretary of the famous Smithosian Institute of Washington. And he found the great discovery. He found the oldest fossil ranging over a half a billion years old. Crazy. The crazy amount of uh, stuff with it. But during this time, according to science, a half a billion years ago, 500 million years ago, the earth was dominated by water and life has not yet crawled out of the sea. Now he found something very interesting. And by the way, these fossils that he found... Were extraordinarily well preserved to the extent that it wasn't just the hard shells, but rather it was the molded. You know, it was it was even the the soft parts of the anatomy. Tell you where, I mean, before I even go for that. I tell you where, I, where I, yeah, I got this. Before I gave this class about two hours ago, um, I get a phone call for Rabbi Finger, and he, we were talking about certain ideas. And then you know I asked him. You know, if, I I didn't get a hold of he has a he has a book. Um, you know, which is called. Um, what well, he's called Search Judaism. Oh, yeah, he, he wrote a book. He, no, he wrote a book. Yeah, he wrote, a, he wrote many books called Search Judaism. So he, you know, was kind enough to send me, and I found some very, very interesting information on it. And I want to, you know, so I have to, you know, this is part of, the, you, know, his, uh, you know, his works, I want to, uh, you know, give credit where credit is, is due. Um, it's something very, very interesting. So he, I, I had this information before, but I found more information, over, you know, here now, B'alak Hashem. So he said like this. He said that these fossils, they sat there from, according to science, 500 million years ago until 1909 when paleontologist Charles Walcott came on to this. Now how much did he find? How many fossils did he find? A tremendous amount. That every year, every summer he would come back and he would collect more and more fossils. To the extent that afterwards contained 65,000 fossils that he found over there. And of all the fossils, it was over 170 species. Of, of, of different species that he found. Now this caused a very big problem because because 500 million years ago, there shouldn't have been 170 species. This shouldn't have happened. This was a very big problem because it was also a very avid evolutionist. So, he did the only logical thing to do is he hid those fossils. He didn't bring them out. And he hid them he hid them in the Smithsonian. Okay, when was this discovered? This was discovered in 1985. It, you know, this is what it was discovered. In 1989, Harvard paleontologist by the name of Stephen Jay Gould, he wrote a book called Wonderful Life. And in it, he argued that the presence of 170 widely varied species forces a fundamental change into the understanding of evolution. This doesn't make any sense, because there shouldn't have been that many. It shouldn't have been, especially on life. It does not make sense. It It puts a very big hole in the evolution theory. So, he said that rather... Somehow, these diverse species emerged and evolved sm- simultaneously. Somehow, it just happened to, you know, to happen. A chaotic, and I'm, I'm quoting, a chaotic e- a explosion of life. Very, very problematic um, you know, type of, of situation. Now, look at what people who believe evolution, when they find the evidence, instead of sharing with it, they hide it. Now, you're believing somebody who's basically trying to sell you something. Now, it's becoming a business deal almost. You, know, you, te- you go to you know, someone who's selling you a product. Let's say you go to somebody and they're trying to sell you some cream. It may rhyme with shed sea scrolls, right? Um, or, you know, something along that region. And they say, listen, listen, hey, you're very ugly. Come over here. You put this cream, you make yourself beautiful. And they come over here. They're trying to sell... Are they going to tell you, well, maybe there's a problem with this cream. maybe there's not? No, they're going to tell you all the good things about it. What happens if there's a scientific study that comes with a problem? And, and by the way, I'm not in the Dead Sea. There's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's very healthy. I'm not putting anything against it. There's no scientific evidence as far as I know that anything against it. But I'm using it as an example. You go over there and you say, you know there's a study that comes out that it's very bad for you. Are they going to put a, you know, a slab on their on their little booth be like buy this, but by the way, you know, general surgeon's warning, you know, if you get this, you might, you know, mutate yes, cigarette, they cigarette they do because they require to by law. You think they want to do that. <laughs> you think they are like, you know what's going to sell the product if we slap a warning on it it'd be like this might kill you. But like this is going to sell. Marketing at its best. Might
1: kill you. It's going to cause you to have lung cancer. it's going to cause
0: to right. But but they don't put all that information on there. They, also they write it really put smoke. it really. Oh, they put it, but say? I don't smoke, so I don't
1: in know. In the world, they had pictures. Pictures. Oh, they have pictures. That's very smart.
0: That's very smart. That is smart for people that smoke. They should look at it that's good, I think I should move that over here like
1: that's
0: so, um, so in any case so now we're dealing with scientific fraud alright, over here we have, now this is not scientific fraud yet, this is sort of just like withholding evidence, Well, let's go on the British scientific community they found, the paleontologists and the, anthropo- and the anthropologists, they found they discovered a skull of a hybrid human crazy discovery, a crazy discovery they called this the Piltdown Man this is... A, and the, they found this, the intermediate stage between man and ape. Between human and ape. Crazy! Unbelievable. Until 1954. When they discovered that this... Somebody put together the bones of an ape and the bones of a human together. And they sort of presented it and then they found it. Complete fraud that they discovered from it. So this is, what, this is the type of... How much strong they believe in it. In July, 1998. National Geographic. A very respectable, uh, you, know, you know, magazine. They published an article... Dinosaurs take swing. so we, did, according to evolution, the way that you know the the uh, birds came into being came from uh, you know from there was a dinosaur transition to a bird. So they discovered something also that filled the gaps, a a sort of a, uh, a primitive bird, but with teeth and tail of a small dinosaur, sort of like that combined thing that plugs in all the information that we needed. Amazing discovery that would that would that you know like you know. Uh, like, it was like just celebration for the evolutionists, it was like, you know, partying everywhere they were going, it's unbelievable. Until a very short while afterwards, somebody by the name of Dr. Olson, he was a, by the way, this was a, um, this is brought down in the New York Times, in um, Oh, I'm sorry, the, the skull. Remember I mentioned to you earlier about the skull? I want to tell you the source for that. It was brought in the New York Times, November 22, 1953. That's who brought down this, uh, this story. In, uh, then we went on to the July 1998, so with this uh, half bird, half dinosaur situation. Dr. Olson, a curator of birth of the Smithsonian, right. Okay. Institute of National Museum of Natural History, he immediately recognized that this is a problem. This is a scandal, this is a fraud, and he wrote an open letter dated uh, November 1, 1999, an address to the Secretary of National Geographic. And I I don't have to go through the letter, but it wasn't the letter of, I congratulations on your finding. It was, this is fraud, this is fake, this this doesn't make any sense. So National Geographic had found itself in a very embarrassing situation. They pulled, they had to retract this entire article that the fossil was fake, and then a few months later, seven months later, in October 2000, issue of National Geographic, they put a comprehensive article explaining how they came into that. What happened was, where did they get these fossils from? In a place in China, there was a place that, you know, farmers found it very beneficial and very financially, um, you know, pushing to sort of present fossils to people who want to buy now people wanted to pay good money for the fossils but people paid better money if it was a full fossil so some of them doctored these fossils they sort of used some glue and they sort of you know they th- decided to make it a full thing so this you know uh, um, you know, farmer he glued together two completely different fossils and he put it together and he presented them. and they went and they said look we found it right without even doing any research on the, on the idea of it they went and they, and they did it Another piece of falsifying information. A person by the name of Ernest Haeckel, he made huge charts of embryos, and he, made, he showed that dog embryos and human embryos are, look exactly alike. Now, a short while after that, he was convicted of fraud by his own university. His own university. But it's something very interesting. To this day, they still teach this model. He was convicted by fraud, but they still are teaching this model. I know maybe not, by now they changed it, but from, from, my, from my research on it, they're still teaching uh, this model over here. So, we come in with a, with, a, with, a, with a lot of problems with evolution. We have problems that, you know, microevolution, I give it to you, I agree with it, it's a fact, it exists, they can mutate a little bit. Mutations, fine, but macroevolution, we don't have evidence for that. To say that we came from monkeys, even though that's also factually incorrect, but let's say, you know, most people don't know anything about evolution, they'll say we came from monkeys. So we say we came from monkeys, we came from all these things. Where do you have your proof to support that? Science is supposed to answer the questions, not bring more questions. Here, you're bringing me more questions. Where are your answers? I don't know. We'll wait, we'll wait and see. You know, they're having faith that, that, that this is going to happen. Speaking about, um, you know, monkeys and, um, you know, and, and where they come from humans, you know, we say that there's a, the scientists have sequenced the genes of the chimpanzee and found that they are 96% similar to the, to, uh, you know, to the people, to the human beings. a so very, very close similarity. So, uh, you know, how, we, how do you answer that? So the question is, did we come from monkeys, or did monkey come from us? So look at the Gemara in Sanhedrin, page 1098. It says like this. It says that the generation of the Tower of Babel, they were split into three categories. They were the people that built the tower, they wanted to fight against God. But not all of them wanted to fight against God. One of them built the tower, and they wanted to go and live there whatever that means, where they wanted to live. They were punished. How were they punished? Hashem scattered them all over the world. There was another group of people also built the same tower, but they had a different idea in mind. They wanted to go and wage war against God. God turned them into apes, spirits, and devils. The Galah says that not that we came from the apes, but the apes came from us. There's also another thing that they, uh, the section that they said that they wanted to go up and, and survive. God went and, and scattered their languages all over the place. The with all these things, I do have to put another um, caveat into this, uh, into this class. Rav Shemshun Rafal Hirsch, he was personally skeptical about evolution. But 14 years after the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species, he came out, Rav Shemshun Rafal Hirsch, and he saw no theological problem with it, according to the Torah. He says it's very possible that you could you know, interpret it the understanding that we have of creation is very, very complex. We have very, very little information in the Torah that speaks about, in the Bible, that speaks about creation. How do you understand it? Is you know theoretical? Actual? You know, there's, very, there's a lot of different interpretations of it. It's a very, very deep t- subject to understand. So it says it's not theological a, a problem thinking about that very unlikely, he doesn't believe in it, but it doesn't count as, you know, like this is a problem against the law. because technically you could say in fact, he says, that if it does, if science does ever prove that this, that this, you know, that we came from one species, we would have to give even a greater reverence to God than ever before, because he was able to bring the entire existence all from one being but even though still, it's very unlikely we gotta gotta put that, uh, you know that, that, uh, uh, you know, caveat uh, you know, in here Let's finish off with a few ideas over here, and uh, we'll open up for some uh, questions. The... I'm good on time. Okay. I want to share with you a quote from a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, Professor Harald Urey. He says like this, Every scientist who investigates the origin of life discovers that the deeper we penetrate into the subject, the more we suspect that it is impossible that such complexity could have been the result of accidental evolution. Nonetheless, we have unanimously agreed as an article of faith that life on this planet evolved from inert matter, even though the complexity of life forms is such a great magnitude that it is difficult to imagine how it all happened. I have a different answer. The answer is that maybe there was another hand in play over here. Maybe there was another hand in play, and even if you want to go through evolution, there's one word that you have to take out, and that's random mutations. There's no way that this happened randomly. There's no way that this happened... Even, the, even with mutations, I, I find it very hard to believe according to the science that we have today. But even if you go through evolution, there's no way that this happened randomly or all the, all the possibility of a chances is so unlikely of it to happen that you can't. And people use us to push God. Just the opposite. When you study evolution and you see how unlikely it is for it to happen, this should lead you towards God. This should lead you to the fact that there has to be another, there has to be a divine supervision of everything that happens over here. It doesn't make any sense otherwise. Until science has an answer, this is the most probable solution. Possible, evolution. Probable, in my opinion, God imagine you go to evolutionists and you say you go into space and you find a, a car floating in space a spaceship whatever it is it floating in space in space. and you ask them where did this come from what are they going to tell you you know someone created it and you know got, somehow it got up there maybe out of all the billions and billions of explosions of stars and atoms maybe it created this what are the chances that they're going to say somebody put it up there or it just happened to, you know it just happened to come through, through you know, random explosions they're going to say somebody had to create it. look at the cloth look at the cloth Look at the stitching on the seats. It has to be that it was somebody created over there because all of the time the next class we 're going to speak about we 're going to deal with with the, the beauty of the design. how you look at the world when you look at the design of the world you 're going to think about this possible that there was just happened by chance. I know I said we 're going to finish with that, but I have to finish with one with one, uh, some, some other interesting uh, facts, and we do have to uh, you know deal. This was brought down by dr. Nathan uh, you know, Aviezer. he 's a physics uh, he 's a physics professor at Bar University. The question is is that, uh, according to science, dinosaurs inhabited the Earth. Where are they now? Why are they not here anymore? They were the most powerful beings on Earth. How did they suddenly become extinct? In fact, this is the most famous mass extinction extinction in the history of our planet. Where did they go? Beautiful answer. Um, that That was said by a Nobel Prize winner by the name of Louis Alvarez and his son Walter. He said like this. What happened was like this. This a theory called the impact theory. There was a giant meteor that hit Earth. And it hit Earth at exactly the right impact. Not too strong, not too little. Like Goldilocks, right? Not too hot, not too cold. Exactly the right pressure that it killed all the dinosaurs, but all the mammals that were al- alive did not get affected by it. And that's why we don't have dinosaurs today and we have, um, you know, mammals, you know, and other beings, you know, that we have today. So... That is, you know, you know, his uh, his theory, which is interesting, you know, to say the least. The, um, you know, I, I do have to, you know, bring up something that also, um, Dr. Nathan, uh, you know, Abiessa brings down the idea of probability. Now, let's say I go and I take a dollar bill, right? I take a dollar bill out, and I say, and I take this dollar bill, and I say, um, and I look at this dollar bill, and I'm like, wow, what is the probability that the serial number is E41104441F. It's like one in a you know how many billions is that is that, is a probability millions whatever it is. It's crazy. Yet here it is. Which means is that it happened. So it's not so you know as crazy as you think it might it might not be so rare. So there's a fault with this theory and uh, with this just statement is understanding what is probability. This was um Said, not by me, but actually by a professor of the University of North Carolina. Let's look at a professor of genetics in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He said like this, Religious scientists place a great emphasis on the remarkable coincidence which characterizes the universe. He says that what? That such remarkable events could not have occurred by chance, rather but had to be by a guiding hand. According to this logic... The probability, he says, of me writing what I'm writing right now on a dull yellow pencil using my left hand sitting on my kitchen table at the specific Jerusalem edges is completely negligible. And yet these are all happening today and they mean nothing. So what they're trying to say is is, is something very interesting. The Earth came into existence. We came into existence. Now we could say the probability, but yeah, we're here, which means is that it had to be as simple as me pulling out the dollar bill and me finding out this the serial number just the, just so happened to you know be it. So I want to explain to you how Richard Feynman, a also a Nobel Prize winner, how he explains uh, probability. Now, you know what the probability of me pulling out this one one dollar bill and having out this exact serial number is? The probability is a whopping 100%. Why? Because I gave this number after I pulled it out. If I were to take out this dollar bill and I said, you know what this dollar bill is? This dollar bill has a, is, is a serial number of E411, blah, 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 whatever it is else that I said. Right? If I were to say that and then I opened it up without looking at it and be I'm like, Wow. I got that. That is a rare occurrence. That is very, very rare. It reminds me, uh, you know, one time somebody says, oh, you want to see a magic, tr- a magic trick? I'm like, you know, uh, yeah, entertain me. Go ahead. And this is years ago as I was a little kid. And, but I still remember this vividly. So he takes, imagine this is a card. He's like, pick a card, any card. So I pick a card. Don't show it to me. Of course, yeah, we all know that. I see the card, and he looks at it. And he says, okay, now give me the card face down. I said okay I give him the card face down on the, on the thing he takes the card and he does something like this um, he takes the card and he goes like this he smacks it on his face and then he starts you know I don't want to rub a dirt gala bill, but then he starts rubbing it all over his face like this and then as he's rubbing it he's doing this you know as if he you know and, and then he says was it the seven of spades I'm like it was <laughs> very good that was really good he's like you see that's like that's exactly what you're telling me. The probability is doing the magic trick and saying, you know, think that you're faster than anybody else. They're like, uh, I didn't see anything. It was a the, the states. You know, that's that's the idea of of what you're saying. So, you know when people say that, you know, we already know that life exists. Then the chance of life having come into existence is hundred percent. No, it's not. You don't know how probability works. Probability work. Think of it as an example like this. You play the lottery and someone wins the lottery. Is that going to shock you? No, you know, you know, let's say Tony won the lottery. Is that going to shock you that Tony won the lottery? No, like somebody had to win the lottery. You know, you know, maybe it might be like, oh, that's cool, I know this person. I might check you a little bit more, but you knew somebody had to win the lottery. But let's say the next lottery, Tony wins again. I'm going to be like, that's going to be like, okay, that's going to shock you. Let's say the third time, Tony wins again. Mafia. That's when you call in the fraud department <laughs> and be like, hello. Yes, you know, we came to investigate. Why? It's a rare occurrence. Rear happen all the time. And that's true. Rare occurrence do happen all the time. But consecutively, one after another, that's when it starts bringing you into question. Now I have a problem with this. Why did this rare occurrence happen all of a sudden, you know, right after one after another? So, you know, when you look at this, there's, you know, it brings a lot of problems into, into, into consideration. The likelihood of this happening is very unlikely. To say that this happened, and you know, it's 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 problematic. It's very problematic when you deal with it. You know, the, you know, there's a lot to there's a lot to say about it. But it's getting late, and I want to open up for for questions. Um, the you know, people say that you know, evolution is a fact. It's not a fact. Microevolution, you could say, it's a fact. Ma- macro is a theory, and it's only a theory, and that's as far as it's going to go. There's many different things that you can speak about, you know, vestigial organs. And there's extra things, even though that these all vestigial organs later are found to have a special specific need. We're not going to get into it because we don't have the time. Um, you know. There are many different aspects in, in these things, but I think the, the understanding is, is fairly clear. Is You can believe in evolution if you want to. You know, No one can change your mind. You can decide whatever you want. But if you open your mind just a little bit, you have to see that there is another hand playing over here. There is something else that's guiding. And that guiding hand is what we call God. As we call HaKadosh Baruch Hu, He is there and He's guiding every step of the way. It doesn't make any sense otherwise. When you look at science, when you look at the facts, when you look at the probability... It points to one direction, and a very, very obvious direction. Questions, go ahead. Who's first? Me. Go ahead.
1: Okay, so for your signal wing creatures like that aren't functioning,
0: so penguins, they can actually fly, but they have wings. Is that a mutation? Yeah, yeah, according to the evolution, of course it's a mutation. It might be from fins, from a from a fish, but it, yeah, it's a, it's a mutation.
1: Also, oh, carbon dating, isn't that talking so really off in the first place?
0: Carbon dating. Uh, well, maybe we'll speak about the when we speak about the age of the universe. Probably in two classes.
1: You're saying, "Well, yeah, it's like millions of years old, but isn't I mean <coughs> that's a whole <homophobic> in in film, <coughs> but
0: isn't the world like ish not, So, well, yeah. well, that's all. We're going to be speak about it about the age of the universe. I want to do a I want to do a class on the age of the universe.
1: 13.7, but we say like. You
0: know. Yeah, we're going to speak about that. I want to. We're going to get into this. Great. It's going to be a great class. What was your? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. You had a question about uh, what is the prob? I don't think I'm going to have an answer that question. What is the probability of? Uh, what is <laughs> what is the but probability of a man or a woman turning into other gender? Well, there's Nowadays, a and age. Ice. Well, that's true. This day and age depends. You mean physically or psychology, psychologically?
1: Without,
0: without, without sex. <laughs> it's, it's impossible. When we talking about gender stuff, I don't, know, I don't want to get into it, but a man is a man and always will be a man, no matter what he associates with himself with. A woman is always going to be a woman, no matter what she associates with himself.
1: What is it with um, those non-binary? Are they a man or a woman? Good they, question. In the religious, the, the religious standpoint, what? How do they? What? Are they, a separate, what do they do? in separate.
0: Right. So it's a good question. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult concept so to to is. understand. Some of the yeah.
1: That are born
0: with bulls, whether whether Any other non-gender related uh, question? Bulls. Yeah. Um, like, um, you not the earlier, um, in the roundtable. Currently, are on the class uh,
1: Homo erectus? Yeah. And how the
0: scientists
1: think. That
0: According to science, yeah, they, they believe that Homo erectus uh, that was a, the or the origin of where humans came from. Now today, so
1: did they find fossils.
0: So they they found well the same fossils that they found, say the like Neanderthals you were mentioning uh, you know earlier. The fossils that they found, so what describes them as as different beings? So they're a little stockier. They have longer, you know, the the the, the, the fossil evidence. Also, you cannot you know they they sort of construct let me explain the, the, the mammoth so the mammoth they originally when they originally found fossils for the mammoth they saw the fossils and they constructed of what they thought it would be and afterwards they actually found a fully you know you know complete you know fossil of a mammoth like everything frozen in ice so they were completely off with what they thought they they uh you know they said so you have over here this this you know like when they're saying how they think something looks like, does it actually look like that? we see that they were wrong you know originally they see these humans or the skulls that appear humans does it is it exactly what it is exactly what it is i don't I didn't study paleontology enough to understand the difference in it and how they arrived at their conclusion, but from my understanding is I am very skeptical and and not from a religious perspective from a scientific perspective to go and understand and, and what they say when they have you know I have a history of a little bit manipulating with it. And I'm not saying it's a strong history, but it's there. So the science is not into manipulating, it's into facts. And here we're dealing with a little bit more than that, where they're combining a jaw of an ape to a jaw to a head of a thing. And they say, like, oh, you look at it, it's obviously, you know, too different. So it, it puts me a little bit into a... And also, how do you understand it? The people before the flood, the people after the flood, how do they look? It, there's a lot of different ways to understand it. Does, it. does it go against Judaism? Not at all. The the Torah says there were worlds. There were worlds before here that were destroyed. There's many different answers that Judaism that it could fit perfectly, even if evolution goes exactly the way they say. It. So, what do
1: you mean that there were worlds that
0: were? So there's there's idea that the you know God created worlds and destroyed worlds, and they and the the worlds were created or you know and destroyed, which means is is that this is when dealing with the, pro- the age of the universe it is possible that you could say the universe is that old because we're and this is really a topic for the age of the universe we're counting the age of the universe from the date of Adam Alishon from his thing what happened beforehand you know there's, there's a lot of different things that we'll discuss but it's you know it is possible that there were other things you know over here that were created and destroyed how many cycles we are over here we'll speak about that all that should answer you in the class about the age of the universe Ms. Lepisham.
1: What's um, the Torah explanation of like how we look different all around the world? Like
0: you know, Asians look a certain way. That is the Zohar even brings it down. This is this is known that. So let's say you go to Africa or Asia, the, the, they look different than we look. You know, in the you know in, in our side of the world, if you are to go and you are to go into this other part of the world and you were to live there, wherever it is, Asia, Africa, you will look exactly like you are. But generations and generations down, the atmosphere, there's a whole bunch of different factors that come to play that the children are going to look sl- more and more like that. They might become tanner and darker, they might come out and they might, uh, you know, Asians might, they might look more a- more Asian-like. Well, that, that, that's interbreeding, of course, of course that. Yeah, but I'm saying even the children will come out like that.
1: How many generations?
0: The proof is, the proof is you look at, it so depends. Right, and that's why you go to you go to you go in a room, and you have people that come from Yemenite background, and you come people come from an from an you know German background. One is dark, one is white. You'd be like, oh, how did we all come from a, you know from the same ancestor? The answer is because it depends on the atmosphere that you live in; it changes you. This is proven. This is not this is already scientific. This is you could already look at it. Uh, that uh, you know that so so. Why
1: are there some with redheads? I
0: was just wondering the Torah. It doesn't negate the Torah. The Torah agrees with that. That there is this is the. Why, they're redheads? What was the question? Like, what? <laughs>
1: like, for example, like redheads, like, you know, in Israel, like, you would think everyone has, is all of a sudden darker because it's hot. It's like always. It's a like warmer climate. Right. But there's still people with, like, light, fair skin. Do you know they just you move
0: think? there. <laughs> give them time. Yeah. <laughs> they made an Aliyah. Give them a chance. You give them a chance. They just move. I,
1: guess, I <laughs> will guess not change. change. Like me. They just become darker. Okay
0: over generations not, not, not by themselves they will remain the same skin pigmentation that they have but generations and generations as you get down Assuming that you're not even interbreeding—that with—I with was using the term interbreeding—but you, when you're when you're breeding with the people from that you know darker descent, obviously the children are going to have that. But even now, the the atmosphere, that everything is going to come to effect and it's going to make you have that. Uh, you look at people from Russia, different parts of Russia. One is darker, one is lighter. It's it's common nowadays. And we all—they all have the same Torah. They all have the same you know uh, you know things. It all it, it just it's it's perfect. It doesn't. Yeah. How about you? It was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Any
1: questions? Any other questions? You oh, have a listened. I mean, that's fine.
0: You want to go? Okay. You go. You would. You want? Go ahead. Somebody. Just somebody. You want to go off the you want to go off the camera? Go. Go ahead. What's your yeah, question? Off camera, off camera. Nobody. Anybody? Other questions on camera? It's a shame. People I like heard, your questions. I
1: heard your class last week and like with people believing in UFOs, but there's been some stuff in the news about UFOs. Have you heard it? And
0: have you like? D- what? De- define what? and what? Yeah. In in what particular aspect of it? What have you found? Extraterrestrial there life doesn't like exist. That were discovered in the yes. So th- there happens to be that there is uh, there is a lot of conspiracy when dealing with this. In the you know it's the same you know you're dealing with the same people that are dealing with like uh, conspiracy about the twin towers. You know like twin towers? the twin towers that it was really just an inside job. It wasn't even th- you know they're, they're, yeah, I, I've heard theories where people told me about this is not really this, and they bring proofs from left to right from this and this is oh, all. Yeah. Oh. That's true, you'd never know. The question oh. is what is the Taurus perspective. Taurus perspective an extraterrestrial life. I, I do want to speak about it for you know a time. It doesn't speak about it straight out, but it can be inferred that it doesn't that it is possible to have life on other planets, but speaking beings like us, it's very unlikely.
1: Okay. Oh, I have another
0: question. Um, I heard once that this nachash was a dinosaur. You could say that. Yeah, you know, I mean like there were there were large creatures that didn't make it onto the ark. There were creatures that didn't make it. That is known. Really? Was yeah. That bad? No, they just it just didn't. You know, there were creatures that didn't make it to the ark. That's like a known uh, thing. Okay. and that's why they were a lot. What what the reason was? I, you know I don't know, but there were there were there were things that weren't you know.
1: Well then, how do we have a meal? So I was gonna say people don't speak. <coughs> um, technically, like you said, non-speaking beings. Not
0: intelligent. I'm just saying,
1: and was, like technically, the afterworld people
0: don't speak that either. Yeah, telecommunic- what I mean, telecommunicate. What but I'm saying like more the intelligent being that we are, which is, and by the way, another whole thing of evolution that we didn't even touch upon. Like, how did we come all of a sudden to have the ability to have you know our mental capacities to build spaceships like from monkeys? Like, weird that like random mutations. So where are we going to be in 100 million years? Are we going to be you know? Are we going to be all levitating? Are we going to be all just like uh, you know? It's like. Yeah. Well, that's what we know is going to happen, according to science.
1: Artificial intelligence is science.
0: Oh, yeah, okay. Artificial intelligence there's is a science robot right now. Be in, our in our brains. Yeah, but then I could take some more there's a it's robot that has Arabic, Arabic like, citizenship as a human
1: being there. <laughs> even while
0: some of the Arabs only want like, rights. <laughs> no, yeah, that was the last place in the world I think would get a artificial intelligence has a citizenship in a in a in a, yeah, in a Arabic. Was uh, visiting.
1: Her, she was visiting from like another country, from I, I, Germany or wherever. She was visiting an
0: artificial in intelligence Arabic
1: country, and, and they were asking her questions, and they're like, Well, you're welcome to have citizenship here. Oh. <laughs> I bet you can come to America. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: There's nothing I can say to that.
1: So, <laughs> people that like evolutionists or whatever you call them, and then you know, observant people are. Like, we, we all have skin in the game, you know? Like, if we're right, we are right. And if they're right, so, you know, they probably try to prove religion wrong. So, do they say, like, oh, the probability of Hashem coming and talking to this whole generation? Right,
0: so they do, science does bring it down. we'll, we'll, we'll speak about that when we speak about the, you know, we're, right now we're focusing on trying to believe, on trying to prove that there is a God. After we get a God, we have to figure out what's the purpose, and after we've got to figure out what the purpose, do we have the right religion? Maybe other religions are right, maybe we're not right. So, and I'll get in a second, the, but the, um, they do, they do, spe- they do, uh, you know, ask all those, of course they ask all those questions. Um, they're, they're known, as, so they there's evolutionists versus creationists. People who believe in the Bible and the Torah, it doesn't have to be Judaism, Christians, or, you know, Islam, they're known as creationists. They believe that there is a creation, evolutionists believe in evolution. Now, majority, if you realize, majority of, of today's class that we spoke about had very little to do with, with specific Torah ideas. We dealt with it in a, spe- in a very strong scientific manner, which means is we use science itself to see if it's right or if it's wrong. Now, even if science is right, even if science is right and the, you know, we did come from, you know, one microorganism in one, one, you know, cell it still doesn't negate the Torah. It doesn't go against... I mean, you could... It very, it's very unlikely, because we have a lot of things that come into, into fact. You know, B'rish's bara, God created the world, you know, God, you know, Adam created... There's a lot of factors that come into play, but just broad, straight out, there are opinions that say that it doesn't go against... It doesn't go against of what, we, uh, you know, what we believe. Scientifically speaking, it doesn't sound it. Some people say that if you believe it, it's kfirah, it's heresy, it's, it's a heretic... There is an idea of it also, because if you're denying the fact that there is a God then yeah, if you're going that far, that there is a God. We know for 100% certainty that there is a God. 100% certainty. And that's the goal of this, trying to figure it out. This should lead you not towards an idea of like, yeah, we probably came from you know, you know, this microorganism, which came from nothing, which we don't know, which we don't know, which we don't know, which probability it doesn't make any sense, to the other very simple answer that we were created. It, like there, it should lead you towards that, uh, you know, that uh, direction. What is
1: next week's topic?
0: Um, I'm hoping it's for it to be the design of the world and probably other things. Jewish history. We'll pull with another, and then I want to finish off with uh, the age of the universe. And that's the end of the, this part of the series. Yeah.
1: Is evolution like still going? Is there something that comes yeah. after?
0: Of course, they think that yeah, of course. What's next? Like, uh, what's next? They don't you know. No. Superhumans? The no, there's, there's gonna the be yeah, there's gonna be yeah. We'll to yeah. <laughs> they didn't. We didn't get there yet. All right. Any other questions? No other questions. Only off camera. Okay. Hazagabo.